0: You're listening to the latest preaching from Brixham Community Church. I want to really talk about um, a scripture from Daniel. And I'm doing it from the Amplified Bible. And it says, The people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and shall stand firm and do bold and daring feats for God. The word there is exploits. Bold and daring feats for God. And I looked at what this word to know meant because obviously the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so I'm just reading what I found online. The Hebrew root word for this to know is a word called yada. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's Y-A-D-A. And it's translated know or knowledge. It's used nearly 950 times in this Bible, this one word to know. But in the Hebrew, um, it has many meanings. Uh, more than the English word know. So there's connotations there that we wouldn't understand that maybe the writer's meaning. So to know, this is what I say, is not to be intellectually informed about something as an abstract principle, but to apprehend and experience the reality. So it's not just about the mind, it's something else to know. So biblically, to know God is not to know about him in an abstract and impersonal manner, but rather to enter into his saving actions. Enter in. To know God is not to struggle philosophically, philosophically Sorry, with his eternal essence, but rather to recognize and accept his claims. It is not some mystical contemplation, but dutiful obedience. True knowledge of God involves obeying the stipulations of his covenants and it's expressed in living in conformity to his will. With this understanding of knowledge, the opposite of knowledge is not ignorance, but it's actually rebellion. How many of us thought of that? To know God is to enter into what he's already done. And the opposite not it's not just not understanding, but it's actually rebellion. Such a deep meaning here. And I want to look at some of the words, this know in the Old Testament and the New. The word know... Is used as a a euphemism for the intimacy between a husband and wife. In Genesis, it says, in the Old Translation, Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. Intimacy with God always produces fruit. There's a reason for intimacy. Jesus is known on several occasions when he was speaking as the bridegroom. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ. In a sense, we're the bride, he's the bridegroom. Any connection we have with Jesus should always produce fruit. And it's sad. And we can't stand in judgment because we could be somewhere else this. How many churches have fallen asleep? The intimacy they think they have with God is actually not producing any fruit. We're told in John 15, he cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit. And he prunes the, the vine so it will become even more fruitful if you don't abide in God. In Ephesians it said, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he's already prepared for us to do. And then in Philippians Paul says again, for it is God who works in you to will you and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. There's a reason why there's intimacy with God. If it's not producing good works then is it true intimacy? Is it the know that God wants us to know? We know God. Those who know God Really know God, not just up here. Know there's a purpose for your lives. There's a purpose Why you're here, and it is to bear fruit, whatever that might look like, whatever it might look like. But it has to be the right kind of fruit. It has to be. Jesus knew that there were true and false disciples. See, anyone can say they're a disciple, but actually Jesus knew who belonged to him. Jesus uniquely knows God John says in chapter 8, though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. There's something here that says knowledge and doing God's will are equated. You cannot separate the two. So if you say you know God and you're not doing what God says, you cannot say you know God. This is hard, but this is what Jesus is saying. I know God and I keep his word. And strangely enough, Mandy gave me this, she quoted this to me last Sunday, but I'd already written it down here and I didn't realize it was the same verse about how can we say we know God and we don't do as he says. There's something about keeping his word. In John 8, Jesus speaking to the Jews said, those who believed in him, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. It's there again. If you hold to my teaching, you really are. Then you will know the truth, know the truth. And the truth will set you free. It's not enough. The the Bible doesn't say the truth will set you free. There's something that goes before that, before the truth can set you free. It's that you've got to know it. And I don't think you just got to know it here. You've got to know it in here. That's when we set free, when we know the truth. And Jesus said these startling words in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who knows the will of my Father who is in heaven, and who does it. It's tied there. He's saying, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, they won't, so as we do God's will. And Jesus continued, many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? But then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. That's the opposite of doing good evildoers. So there's an assumption that you weren't doing as I asked you to do. The New Testament does emphasize that knowing God is simple, It's not a simple intellectual exercise, but it is a response of faith and an acceptance of Jesus. You cannot separate the two. John chapter 1 tells us that it is Jesus who has made known, God known to us. And John 14 takes us a step further and states that to know Christ is to know God. And John, he, he certainly talks a lot about this, John. In John 17, he sums up what eternal life is all about. Eternal life is to know the one and true God and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is eternal life, knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he has sent. Not up here, but in here. Years ago, I remember somebody says, I know with my knower. There's something beyond there that's spiritual, I know. No matter what everybody says, I know this. So again, Daniel 11 says, The people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and shall stand firm and do exploits. Bold, daring acts for God. Psalm 46, I think, is an echo of this. I'm going to read the whole, I think it's a whole psalm. It's 11 verses I've got here. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. I just had a look online. Somebody might give a few comments on that Psalm, especially this "Be be still and know that I am God." And I don't know the David we know. A gentleman called John Gill. He gave an exposition on this bit of the of the Psalm, and I just want to read what he says here. "Be still and know that I am God." is a popular verse for comforting ourselves and others. Many people tend to think this verse means to rest or relax. In who God is. This verse does encourage believers to reflect on who God is, but there is more to this psalm than one verse. And verse 10 is actually more of a wake up call to be in awe than a gentle call to rest. Taking time out of our day to meditate on Scripture and be silent with listening ears towards God is mentioned in other sections of Scripture. Psalm 119 verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Luke 5 tells that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. But this command in Psalm 46, be still, is written in the context of time, of trouble, and of war. Therefore, we should consider the verse with that context in mind. Instead of interpreting be still as a gentle suggestion... The meaning in this psalm lends itself more to cease striving, stop. The people of God should interpret the command for themselves to read more like a snap out of it. Wake up, stop fearing. We need to constantly acknowledge who our God is. To be in awe of him, to be still in his presence and to know his power and his glory. To know and be still of who he is. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. I want to emphasize this word no. So I've rewritten it. It says, know that the Lord is God. Know that it is he who has made us. Know that we are his. Know that we are his people. Know that we are the sheep of his pasture. This psalm is not just about knowing who God is. But it's knowing who we are in God. Who are we? One of my favorite proverbs is, and I'm sure it's many, Proverbs chapter three, five, and six. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make you pass straight. But the literal translation of that is, and we're not going to do the old language, it's trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways know him and he will make you pass straight. Not just acknowledge knowledge; know him, know him. God wants us to know him. Jeremiah 24, verse seven. I know it's speaking to Israel, but I believe this is for us as well. My eyes will watch over them for their good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know me, to know that I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with all their heart. And isn't that what repentance has been about this morning John spoke about? Turning to God with all your heart. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. We're known. God knows us, and he wants us to know him. John 14, you know, the discourse Jesus had with his disciples before his crucifixion. He said to Thomas about, and the disciples, I'm going away. So Thomas comes back and said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip, I think he asked quite a natural question. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip? Even if I, after I have been with you so long, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. this last week, going over this verse, it was almost like Philip asked the question, show the Father. And it's Jesus speaking, but he says, Philip, don't you know me? I, I, it just sends out, it was almost like the Father who was saying that to Philip. You know, it says, if you've seen me, I've seen the Father, but it's always, Philip, don't you know me? And that's the question I think God asks us, don't you know me? But why is it so important to be known and to know? An unusual incident, in Acts chapter 19, verse 13 to 20. Just read a little bit of this. It says, Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sever, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. And one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know I know about Paul, but who are you? And the demonically inspired man overpowered them, beat them, and it says they fled, bruised, battered, and naked. Who are you? I remember once somebody once said, we have to be known in heaven, and you have to be known in the demonogram in hell. These men had no idea really. They didn't know Jesus. He was just using his name. But if you like, the demon knew there was no authority behind the name because he didn't know Jesus. I know you can't get doctrines from demons, but Luke, sorry, Luke put this in here. Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? If that was Jesus speaking to that demon, or if it even had been Paul, it would have been gone because it was carrying the authority of Jesus and of God. Make sure we know God. Don't get involved in any areas where you have no authority to be because you will come off the worst. I just want to look at a couple of examples You know, I was thinking this word exploits. If I asked people what exploits are, some people might say, oh, it's like the charge of the light brigade, you know, into the guns. Was it a balaclava in the Crimea? Or it might be somebody else on the front line doing this. But actually, if it means bold or daring feats or being strengthened, I think it can incorporate any of us, how we face with situations. Maybe nobody else knows, but it might take your courage to face up to something. I think that's an exploit. And we're more likely to do them when we know our God. So I, I know you might have heard this before, but I just want to bring some of this back. Most of you know Henry Francis Light. I don't know that they still play Abide With Me at 8 o'clock, All Saints Church. Do they still do that? They do, every night. So we hear it. But not many people know some of the tragedies that he experienced. He was All Saint, He was minister of All Saints Church in Brixham between 1823 and 1847. He always suffered very poor health, and he'd known tragedy in his life. he lost his daughter at a very young age, and it it really affected him. Henry knew that he was suffering from TB, tuberculosis, and he didn't have very long to live. And so due to his failing health, he decided to move to the south of France, where the warmer weather would help with his TB. So he he began to clear out the parsonage, which most of you know is Berryhead Hotel now. He was clearing out his study, clearing his papers, and he came across a poem that he'd written 25 years earlier. And he'd written it as he'd seen one, another minister, a guy he'd known for a long time. He died. And this guy, as he was dying, kept saying the words, Abide with me, abide with me. And Francis, like a and he'd, he'd written this poem. So now he came home, and um, on September the 4th, he did his final communion up at All Saints, and he went home. And after tea, the gardener said he walked in the garden, and then he went down to the rocks by the sea, where he spent a long time. And he was writing a new hymn, and he was writing and took this poem, and uh, he put it all together. And after the sun had set, he went back up to his family who'd thought he was resting in the other room, and he read out, obviously, which has become a world-famous hymn. Next morning, they left... Um, he was going to live in a place called Menton, near Nice. and apparently in the, the kind of the foothills of the um, Maritime Alps. Nice sunshine. And within a few weeks he died. But in, as he died, he said this, Oh, there is nothing terrible in death. Jesus steps down into the grave before me, and I have both peace and hope. And on his gravestone, these words are carved, Heaven's morning breaks and earth's faint shadows flee. In life, in death, O oh Lord, abide with me. To me, that's an exploit. A man who faced death courageously, with hope, and with faith. And it's brought comfort to millions and millions of people ever since. This one I did mention just a few weeks ago, but please, if you bear with me. Horatio Spafford. Great Chicago fire destroyed everything they had. Sends his wife and four daughters on, um, it was the, biggest yacht of the time. It was a a French yacht and uh, it was called the SS Ville du Havre the biggest yacht of its time, almost like the Titanic of its time. Sent them across the Atlantic, they were going to France but um, halfway across the Atlantic they were rammed by a vessel called the Lockhearn it was a steel sailing ship. I didn't know you had things but it was and it rammed it and within a couple of hours the vessel had gone down taking his four daughters with it. And his wife sent him a telegram saying saved alone. Saved alone. He got the next ship over, the next sailing ship. And when they were passing over the place where the ship had gone down, the captain brought him up on deck and he stayed up there for a little while. And then he went down to his cabin and he wrote a hymn that actually has been sung again millions, millions of times, it must be. And he wrote this. And if you don't mind... I'll just read most of this because uh, we have got the time and I think it gives the impression of the hope, even in tragedy. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to know it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he's shed his own blood for my soul. O oh, my sin, O oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live. Just think, he's lost his four daughters. If Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine for in death is in life. Thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest for my soul. If somebody could go down to a cabin and write those words after just being passing the place where your four beautiful daughters had died. If that's not an exploit, I don't know what is. And just one more. A man called Joseph Scrivens. Siven, sorry. Tragedy haunted this young man. It haunted him. He seemed to dog his footsteps. Following his graduation from the University of Dublin in 1842, his 23rd year, he fled from Ireland, not because he'd done anything wrong, but because the night before his wedding his wife or his fiance was tragically drowned and he couldn't bear to be around the sights and the smells of where he'd known so much happiness. So he actually fled to Canada, thousands of miles away, and he went to live in a little place called Port Hope on the north shore of Ontario Lake, which is part of obviously the state of Ontario. But as the years went by, it seemed as if happiness evaded him. I mean, he became a teacher. He taught you know, in a local school. He was a tutor to a, a well-off family, to their daughters. But one night in 1855, he was weighed down by loneliness, sadness, heartbreak in some ways. He begged God to take that from him. He begged him to take it from him. And God heard his prayer. And as he was praying, it was like, miraculously, the way, the despondence, everything lifted from his shoulders. And again, he felt compelled to write down his experience of that. And at that time, it was just a poem, but it later became a hymn. And the poem was actually called Pray Without Ceasing. I'll read you some of the words. Get to the right page. I wanted to read you all these, so... What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, precious Savior, still our refuge? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Surely the sadness, and it didn't end for him. Again, he fell in love. Tragically, she died before they could get married with T.B., They said of him, his face, he committed his whole life to Jesus in a way that Jack has actually been saying this morning. He gave my life. He said he had a face like an angel. He gave most of his earthly income away because he said the poor needed it more than he did. He couldn't stop talking about Jesus. It was said that everybody he met, he told them about the love of Jesus. He had tragedy. I want to finish with this. When we know God... And we need to know God. And we can find that, I believe, by spending more time with him, praying more, reading the Bible more. I would even say speaking in tongues more because we're spiritually attuning ourselves with God more. But you know, it isn't the tragedies in our lives or the struggles we have that define who you are. It's not the broken dreams or the hurt. That doesn't define you. It doesn't define you how many times you fall down. When you know God, what defines you is how many times you get back up again and pursue God's dreams for your life and the purpose he's called you to that's what defines us somebody once said it's not experience that shows what you like it's how you deal with experience that shows what you like and when we know God we get back up again we don't fall under it he strengthens us he makes us strong not what we've read the people who know their God shall prove themselves strong and shall stand firm and they'll do great exploits for God I'll finish with a poem written by a man Martha Smell Nicholson. You might have heard of her, and I might have said this before. She had four life-threatening diseases, totally bedridden. Her husband was a carer. He died. She's heartbroken. On top of everything, she had this. And yet she got so close to God. In those times, she's written some of the most amazing things that God in prayer has revealed to her. And I want to read one poem that says about the journey through death. I think it's something we need to know because it's been looked at with different eyes. This isn't death, it's glory. It isn't dark, it's light. It isn't stumbling, groping, or even faith, it's sight. This isn't grief, it's having my last tear wiped away. It's sunrise, it's the morning of my eternal day. This isn't even praying, it's speaking face to face listening and glimpsing the wonders of his grace. This is the end of pleading for strength to bear my pain. Not even pain's dark memory will ever live again. How did I bear the earth life before I came up higher? Before my soul was granted its very deep desire? Before I knew this rapture of meeting face to face, the one who sought me, he saved me and he kept me by his grace. We're kept by his grace until that great day when we see him face to face. Thanks for listening. For more information visit rixham.church.